Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, we're looking at verses 7 through 12 this morning. You can turn there, but um, you're familiar with, in the bulletin, how we, we have our call to worship. And we've been using Hebrews verses, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, since we began this series in Hebrews. And so if I were to reference some word in that, you would be familiar with kind of the, the passage by now. You've heard it enough. Um, the bulk of the passage we're looking at this morning is also from a psalm that, is, that was used as a call to worship uh, in the Hebrew liturgy. It's Psalm 95. And that psalm opens with a familiar call to worship that we've actually used here in the past. It's an excellent um, call to worship even today. It says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. It, it brings us into his presence, recognizing who he is as the rock of our salvation, one who's worthy uh, to sing praises to, to make a joyful noise. It reminds us that we come with joy, that we come with reverence. And so some Bible scholars have argued that this psalm was, was liturgical and frequently used during the preamble of the synagogue worship. So these Hebrew Christians uh, in Rome would have been familiar with this passage as, as uh, the author of Hebrews quotes from verses 7 through 11 of, of that Psalm 95. They would, they would be able to recall most of that psalm probably as they would have been, uh, they would have heard it many times. So that's the, the, that context. Remember, we've been doing this, and we'll do this again today, where we go back, we want to understand what's the context of these quotes, what's the broader context from which this quote comes, uh, because I think it, it informs how the author of Hebrews is, is using it, what he intends for it to do. Um, again, remind, I want to remind you, chapters 1 and 2 has been this ongoing argument, really all of Hebrews is an argument about Jesus being greater. Jesus is greater than anything, right? Greater than everything. Um, and in this particular, or those first two chapters, he was saying Jesus is superior to angels. Um, and then in chapters three through four, which we just started last week, he's beginning to show that Jesus is superior to Moses. Again, this is a, a group of Hebrew Christians who, who had a, a high appreciation, a high regard and value. They honored Moses and his example of faith. But Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. We read in Hebrews 3, 3 last week. So speaking of Moses now, he's continuing that argument, right? He, Moses, you'll recall, led a rebellious generation. And that generation was grumbling. They, they, when you think of the wilderness generation, you think of faithless, uh, disingenuous people wandering and complaining all the time. Right? That's the community that's referred to here. And so he's, he's saying, now you have this high regard for Moses. Make sure that you're not like the people Moses led. That you're not wandering with disingenuous hearts. That you're not faithless. Right? That you, you remain among the covenant community, but your hearts are not really stirred by this truth. 
that your hearts are far from God. That's the danger that, that he's going to emphasize multiple times. He'll emphasize it here in this passage that we'll read today, but he'll come back to this theme throughout Hebrews. So he's suggesting that to walk by faith is to fight against this tendency to go astray in our hearts. It's like the song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Believers know that. They know this temptation to wander away from the faith, uh, to depart from the church, to do do something that's much easier, right? Just to, to kind of be inculcated into the culture to become like our neighbors instead of being set apart instead of having what feels like a target sometimes upon our back because we go to church because we proclaim the truth of the gospel and so to walk by faith is going to be this fight this fight against a tendency or temptation to go astray so let's ask the lord for his help in understanding this passage before we read it heavenly father we thank you for your word. We do thank you for this passage and this warning that it gives to us. It's not just to a people who themselves were tempted by these things uh, as, a, as an illustration for us of, of, of something that's really distant from us. Instead, it's, it's an illustration of a people who are just like us. It's an illustration of a temptation that we all face. And so, Lord, we want to understand the, the warning clearly. We want to heed the warning. We want to be attentive in our minds and in our hearts, Lord, to this truth. And so enable us, Lord, to hear it. Enable us to see it and to respond in obedience. Lord, bring us to yourself. Bring us to repentance and faith. And I that we might continue to to hear this warning and continue to walk by faith and not by sight, to stay on that path that is straight and narrow. And even though we're tempted by uh, the, the things that are all around us, Lord, this world, our own flesh, the temptations of the devil, Lord, but may all of that fade as we reflect upon the glory and the superiority of the Son, to whom we are are drawing near. And as your Spirit is at work in us, Lord, may you begin that work of transformation. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the first point in your outline, if you're following along with me, is the spirit of worship. I just want to look at this opening 
the very first phrase, really, the first half of verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit spoke through the psalmist. This passage that's about to be quoted in Psalm 95, it's, Psalm, uh, it's verses 7 through 11, as I've mentioned. We'll also see this uh, same psalm referred to in the next chapter. Look ahead at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So why here does he say that these words were given by the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit says, and then in the next chapter he acknowledges that it is David who said these things, which is true. Is he contradicting himself? There's an important hermeneutical principle that most of you probably are, are familiar with or know, that, that, but we need to take this to heart. We should consider the situation of the author, right? And, and the, the original audience, which I, I reference a lot. And you're like, well, what is, I, I don't need to know about these Hebrew Christians. Well, yeah, you do, in order to understand what this passage is telling you. You want to understand something about the original context because it helps you to understand what these words meant to them. And what Christ meant to give to them is what he also intends to, to give to you. And so we never want to read the Bible in such a way that, that the words are completely detached from our own situation, as if we can just study this original context, think about all of that, and say that's what he meant for them. But today, he doesn't tell us those things. Today, he, he gives us a lot more freedom. I mean, you really can, can come away with some crazy interpretations of Scripture if you do that, right? If you think that the application to you is vastly different than it was for the original context. And that's how you get, uh, frankly, completely different uh, doctrines and, and views about, about the roles of, of men and women in, in a home, men and women in the church, men and women in society. And I mean, because you, you begin to, to view this cultural context as so radically different from your own. That's not how we want to read it. We want to recognize, though, that Scripture is profitable for all believers in all times. And so if we can understand something about that original context and we can understand how it applied to them, there are some differences, right? We don't live in the same time, uh, but we have the same God. We have the same Savior, and so the, the instruction is, is the same to us, but we need to understand that it comes to us after Christ has, has accomplished and fulfilled the law, right? So there's, there's some differences in how we make sense of it. I'm not suggesting that it's, that it's exactly the same. But when we read the, the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, there's a, it's a lengthy chapter about the Word of God, how we are to understand the Word of God. And it's God's revealing of himself, right? It acknowledges, first of all, that there's a way in which God reveals himself in a very general way to all people, that people are, are, uh, have the ability to see God's attributes, his beauty, even in creation. Right? They, whether, they, whether or not they've ever opened his word, ever been into uh, a church, they can see something of God in creation. They know something about him in their conscience, in their heart. They, in fact, have a, a morality that they live by based upon the way God has made them in his image. 
right? So there's this general acknowledgement of God's revelation, but then there's also this need for special revelation, which is necessary unto salvation. That you're not going to be saved purely by observing what God reveals of himself in creation. As true as it is, it's not salvific knowledge that you'll come to. Special revelation was accomplished through a diversity of means. It's not simply the word of God. It's, it's the word of the prophets that were given in the Old Testament. It's the word that was given through the priest when they, when they uh, asked questions and, and pulled out the Urim and the Thummim. Right? And we've talked about that in the past. We won't go there now. But, or, or even the casting of lots. God was directing and guiding by his providential will through these various means. He was in a special way giving them knowledge. But eventually and primarily the Lord saw fit, as the confession explains, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth. Right? That, that he would write it down for us. That we wouldn't just have this, this oral tradition that's passed on from generation to generation, but we would have a written word that we could look to and understand what God is teaching us about himself. So some of our children who know their catechism will be familiar with this question, who wrote the Bible? And holy men who were taught by the Holy Spirit. Holy men who were taught by the Holy Spirit. So the author of Hebrews is right to acknowledge that it's the Holy Spirit who says these words, and it's David who says these words. Both are true. Both are needed and important for us to keep in mind every time we open his word. So when the word of God was written down, it was done by men who were guided by the Holy Spirit. You have the same uh, acknowledgement by Peter. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what that catechism is, is referring to, is that, that verse. And since we know that the Holy Spirit is the author, we know that the word of God is perfect. Therefore, it's infallible. It's inerrant. Any perceived conflict or contradiction between two human authors is just a perception. It's not an actual conflict or contradiction. Errors in the Bible have no basis in reality because to suggest such a thing is to admit that God makes mistakes, that God changes, that God contradicts himself. And it suggests that there's some authority or some rule that's above God that can judge God to be, you know, uh, showing that he lacks integrity. And we can also know with complete confidence that this psalm has relevance for us today because the Holy Spirit continues to speak to us through the word of God. He continues to, to reveal himself to us through his word. This passage was given in order to justify our worship. Right? We, we should worship God because we belong to him. This is kind of the, the context of Psalm 95. You have this call to worship. We'll, we'll come back to this as well, but it's, it's, it's not only saying come to worship, but why you should do so. Right? We should worship God because we belong to him, because he made us. Worship is not defined by a, a physical posture or a particular frame of mind 
or a condition of the heart. Worship is all of these things. Worship is the, involving the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. It's not limited to one particular thing. And so it engages our minds. It engages our affections. It stirs up our hearts. The word of God speaks to the heart of God's people. And we respond with hearts that are softened by the Holy Spirit. And so communion with God, whether, whether we're singing, whether we're praying to him, whether we're reading his word, when we commune with him rightly by faith, it's as the psalm tells us, Psalm 42, 7, that it's deep calling out to deep. It's the spirit revealing himself to, the, to us, to our spirit who's been given to us. When Jesus explained worship to the woman at the well, he gave that all-important qualification. Right? God is spirit. And so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It involves the whole person. And when we worship God according to his will, our hearts will be engaged. So that's where I want to turn to next. And that's the bulk of our, our time here is verses, the, the second half of verse 7 through verse 11 the heart of worship. As we've done previously, we should consider the, the context of the whole psalm. Since the community of Jewish Christians were most likely familiar with it from their synagogue worship, again, this is this practice of, of situating ourselves in, in the original context is important. Once we understand what was being communicated to them, we can more readily understand what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today. And I've already pointed out that the psalm opens with this corporate call to worship. Verses 1 through 6, the psalm calls the audience to sing and to praise God with a joyful noise. And then he explains why they should do that. Because our God is a great king who owns all that he has created. And so then he returns back to another call in verse 6 before once again explaining why. We should worship him because just as he owns everything he has created, we also belong to him. Verse 7 of Psalm 95, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And then you get to what's quoted in Hebrews. Today if you hear his voice. That's the last part of verse 7. That's where the author of Hebrews picks up in the psalm. And he begins this quote, which, in, in, which will include the rest of the psalm. Verses 7 through 11 is the end of, of Psalm 95. But think about the context then of this psalm. Psalm 95 is really reflecting upon, or at least the, the section that's recorded here, is a reflection upon this rebellion that takes place in Exodus 17, 1 through 7. And so what happens prior to that in Exodus? <clears throat> this generation has witnessed several miracles that led to their exodus out of Egypt. They saw Moses turn water into blood. The land of Egypt was ravaged by the multiplication of frogs and then gnats and then flies. God sent a plague that wiped out Egyptian livestock. He gave the people and beasts painful boils. God sent hail upon the fields that destroyed everything it hit. 
And then after that, whatever was, was left and dying, he sent the locusts to, to feed on it, to completely wipe it out. Then God sent pitch darkness upon the land of Egypt for three days so that you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. And then finally, the firstborn male in each Egyptian household was killed. In each of these plagues, God made a distinction between Egypt and Israel so that what was happening to the Egyptians was that Israel was preserved from. They were protected. Even darkness did not fall upon them. It fell upon the Egyptians around them. Israel's supplies were never impacted by the plagues. And then, after departing from Egypt, God had miraculously preserved this same generation in the wilderness. For 40 years, they followed a pillar of cloud by day, and then they were protected by a pillar of fire by night. They crossed the Red Sea, and then just as they get onto the other side and Pharaoh's army is is barreling down upon them, also crossing through the Red Sea, they see the the waters covering over them and wipe them out. And so the next chapter is them singing the song of Moses, celebrating to God for his preserving of them. And then they go to this place they, and, and, uh, where they, they're, they're thirsty, and all they find is, is this bitter water, this pool of bitter water. And, and so Moses throws a log, he's told by God, to throw a log into the water, and it turns it fresh so that they could drink it. Shortly after that, they receive bread from heaven to satisfy their hunger. And when they got tired of bread, he sent them quail until they got tired of meat. And he continued to send them that manna. And so when they arrived at Rephidim and found themselves thirsty again, by now you might think that they would understand God can take care of us. God, God's capable of preserving us. We don't need to fear. We don't need to grumble. We don't need to complain. You know that's not the story. No, they, they, they begin to question the authority of Moses. They begin to challenge whether or not God is good for them, that he's loving to them. Did you just bring us out here to die in the wilderness? That would have happened a long time ago if they'd really thought about it. So they arrive there, and instead of trusting God, they quarrel with Moses. And so, in response, God wipes them out. No, he doesn't. He tells them, strike the rock and you'll get water from the rock. And so what's confounding about all of this is that after all of God's provision and care, after his repeated confirmation of his power, even in this instance, they hardened their hearts against God just like Pharaoh had done. That's, that's the illustration that we learn throughout Exodus is that the people were no better than Pharaoh. And so the Holy Spirit, speaking through David in Psalm 95, as well as through the author of Hebrews who's quoting this, provides a negative example here by considering the the hardened hearts of the rebellious wilderness generation, we are encouraged to do the opposite. 
Right, that's obvious. He's, he's not giving, this, this, giving them this example just to, to bring them to despair, uh, to fill them with dread and worry. No, he's, he's giving them this as a warning in love. It's not loving to ignore the warning, to give them nothing but promises and to suggest that you can ignore the, the difficult, the, the passages about wrath, the psalms that, that, that we sing about that, that, are, that are maybe jarring as you're singing them to your mind. And we sing Psalm 11. I mean, when evil prevails, they foundations remove. Oh, with, oh what then, oh, what then can righteous men do? By sure, be sure that the Lord in his temple on high and heaven enthroned over men casts his eye. The Lord looks on man with his all-searching searching eyes. His eyelids observe their conduct he tries. The Lord tests the righteous who walk in his ways. His soul hates the wicked who terror embrace. The Lord will send judgment and pour out hot coals over all the ungodly. His scorching wind rolls. The Lord ever righteous, his justice portrays. By grace, all the upright will look on his face. Now, we would love to just kind of eliminate some of those lines, right? Just focus on the grace. But God is a God of justice. And he can have nothing to do with our sin. And so we need to heed these warnings as we become complacent in sin, as we become comfortable in sin, by considering the hardened hearts of the rebellious generation were encouraged to do the opposite. He says, do not harden your hearts. And the wilderness generation had, had generally or had gradually but consistently hardened their hearts towards God. John Owen writes, many previous sins make way for the great sin of finally rejecting the voice and word of God. They didn't reach hardened unbelief all at once. Their sin incrementally numbed their hearts against any sense of conviction. So that any of those warnings, as harsh as they might sound, just had no impact. And so if you desire to avoid the same fate as them, then you, you should be in prayer. Right? That the Holy Spirit would soften your heart and that God's kindness might lead you to routine repentance. That's why we pray that before we open God's word, before we begin to preach, we say soften our hearts. Because we know that the alternative is we can listen to this and just be hardened in our hearts. Hardened to the truth. The truth is no different. The warning is the same, but our hearts are far from God. And so instead of responding in repentance, we reject it because we prefer our sin. So do not harden your hearts is what he tells them in verse 8. Do not put God to the test as they did in the wilderness. The wilderness generation tested God. All God's miracles over the course of 40 years never convinced them to trust him. The Pharisees followed in their footsteps. We see the Pharisees, that same language is used of testing God. Well, testing Jesus, right? They test him and they question his authority in, Mark, in Matthew 16 and in Matthew 22. So we could be like them as well. We can challenge these truths or we can be encouraged to be like the outsiders who Jesus ministered, who expressed a strong faith. 
You have the Roman officer in Matthew 8, the woman with an issue of blood in Mark 5, the woman with a demon-oppressed daughter in Mark 15. None of them were, were, were the expected disciples of Jesus, and yet all of them express great, tremendous faith when they have an opportunity to, to uh, encounter him in his ministry. And so the faith of these outsiders stands in stark contrast to the hardened hearts of the ones that everyone thought were the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. Once again, it, it breaks down those walls of superiority among one another, and it says all of us must submit ourselves to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Not putting him to the test, but testing ourselves, testing the genuineness of our faith. And then verse 10, therefore I was provoked with that generation and they said, they always go astray in their hearts. So again, he's encouraging them not to go astray. Their physical wandering in the wilderness was illustrative of our wandering hearts. And so do you believe that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world? And if the spirit indwells you, then, then you can Continue to trust and walk by faith, walk in the Spirit, and not gratify the desires of the flesh. The result is verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The result of that unbelief of that gener generation was that they didn't enter into the promised land. Now, initially, that's the, the result, right, that they don't go into the promised land. They're, they're cut off so that they would have to die in the wilderness. That's described in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 9. But of course, there's a spiritual reality that it points to, and that the promised land always pointed to, and that's the eternal rest of the new heavens and the new earth. It's, it's, it's that rest that awaits, that inheritance that all of us are longing to enter into. And we'll come back to this in the next chapter, Hebrews 4. We'll see it again in Hebrews 11. Um, you, see, you see this concept in Revelation 21. It, it concludes this idea of entering into that new heavens and new earth, a place where we can finally rest free from sin, not burdened by the temptations and the snares of this world. But there's also a component where this should relate to you even today. Right, because it's not just a future promise and like, well, I'm sorry, you're going you're gonna to be anxious. You're going to be filled with, with trials and, and, and challenges. You will be tempted. You will be tested. But if you feel restless and anxious, then you should, you should see how this temporal aspect is informed by having an eternal perspective. So if you recognize the rest that awaits us, it will inform the anxious heart that you have now so that you can stop living in despair, so you, cannot, you can stop striving so much. Right? The temporal points to the eternal, but the eternal reality ought to inform the temporal provoking present encouragement. If God has already secured that eternal rest through Christ, can he not also provide you with temporal rest today? Can he not remove your anxious heart even now? 
And so turning to this audience, the author applies the Psalms warning that he just read. He applies it to them directly just to make sure they don't miss the point. In verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And so this last point is the absence of worship, verse 12. They should consider whether they have the same hearts as this wilderness generation. The call to perseverance often sounds like a warning. They are professing believers who received the word with instantaneous joy, but their rock-hard foundation doesn't allow any root to form underground. Their hearts have been hardened, and so the root doesn't take. And then as soon as their faith is tested, they fall away. That's, that's how Jesus explains it in Luke chapter 8, verse 13. But there's an encouragement in this verse, because what does he call them? Take care, brothers. He longs for them to persevere. He acknowledges that they belong to the family, at least by, by profession. He's, he's not questioning their profession even expects them to persevere. But he must warn them of the possibility of apostatizing from the faith and and failing to enter into the heavenly Jerusalem, failing to reach that heavenly rest, just like the wilderness generation did. And so his warning doesn't mean that he doubts their profession of faith. It simply acknowledges that the stakes are high, that they couldn't be higher. Presumption would be foolish on this point. And so neither does, does his warning admit that the elect can fall away. He's not suggesting that either. He's not saying genuine believers might fall away. He's saying that there may be some among them who presently possess unbelieving hearts. You're in this covenant community right now. But it's possible that your hearts are far from God. And should they persist in their unbelief, they will not reach the rest that God promises to those who persevere. Moreover, as John Owen argues, there is a degree to this unbelief which puts a soul absolutely into an irrecoverable condition in this world. That you've rejected the gospel so many times that you've become absolutely conditioned against it. You've become numb to what it's saying. So again, the author is, is optimistic about their faith, but he does not have infallible instincts. He's not God, and it's not his position to definitively determine the genuineness of the faith of his audience. And so the exhortation to take care is an important one to make. And it's one that every pastor should make. Later on, he'll even accuse them in chapter 5:11 of being dull of hearing. You've become dull of hearing. And he's trying to awaken them. Listen to these warnings. Here he applies it to every reader, lest there be in any of you. I, 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 some, sometimes we hear this and we're like, yeah, I, I know who needs to hear this. <laughs> I wish they were here today. You need to hear it. That's what he's saying. The leadership of the church needs to hear it. 
He applies it to every reader, and he leaves no professor of Christ exempt from the warning. So we have this doctrine, the perseverance of the saints, but it should not give us a presumptuous attitude toward apostasy, the possibility of apostatizing our faith. Don't embrace the promises of God while despising his warnings. Perseverance is required, and not all who commune with saints are genuine saints. Simon Magus was a, an example of someone who professed faith. You can read his story in Acts, Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 24. He, he not only professed faith, he received baptism, and then he was even associated for a time with Philip's ministry maybe even proclaiming the gospel alongside him for a time. All the while, he was an imposter who sought to purchase the gift of God when he saw the Holy Spirit fill, fill disciples through the laying on of hands. He says, give, how can I get that gift? Here's, here's, let me offer you some money. Give me that same gift. And they recognized right away his heart was not of a true disciple. Now the tares will grow among the wheat until the final harvest. And so Psalm 95 had a purpose for that original audience. But it opens with that, well, the, the part that's quoted here, today. He's talking about a generation. They, in, in, math, in Psalm 95, David had, had already been, Israel had already been in the promised land for several generations. And yet he's using the example of that wilderness generation to say, if you don't hear his voice, if you don't repent, you won't enter the rest. So it's clear that the rest that he's talking of is not the promised land only. It's the rest that is offered that the promised land points to, that eternal rest. And so this psalm, that word today, is meant to be applied in every successive generation that might read or sing this psalm, that might use this psalm as a call to worship. It has universal relevance for the people of God. There's never a time when rebelling against God's testing is a good thing. And that will always lead to provoking God's anger and wrath. And it's a possibility in every generation. And so David's today was equally applicable to the first century audience as it is for you now. Today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the day of the rebellion. Do you have an evil, unbelieving heart? Take care. Don't neglect your own soul. Consider these things carefully. Take care that you do not belong to the household of God while sheltering a heart of unbelief. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth. Lord, we acknowledge that it's, it's easy for us to, to hear the, the blessings and the promises. And Lord, we want to relish in your mercies that are new every morning we want to rest in those truths but 
Lord, these warnings are important for us to hear as well because because we can become so enamored by the world. We can become so tempted by our own flesh, so satisfied by what this world has to offer that we fail to look beyond it. And we become presumptuous of your promises and your blessings. Lord, we know that, that our ability to persevere is not in our flesh. It doesn't come from ourselves, Lord. It comes as a gracious gift from you, as you fill us by your spirit and you enable us to walk by faith. So, Lord, that means that the only way we'll respond in obedience to this warning is by your loving guidance, by your spirit. So we pray that you might do that work that only you can do in our hearts. That we truly would take heed of this warning. We would not neglect your, your promises. We would not neglect to, to come in a, with a right attitude of reverence and joy into the house of worship and to recognize that it doesn't just stay here, but it impacts all of life. That we would bring it home with us and that our lives would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next by the work of your spirit through the gift of your son whom we place our faith in. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place, hymn number 425.